0: Welcome to the Evoking History Podcast.
1: We are called as a people to give testimony in the sight of the world to our faith that the future shall belong to the free. Since this century's beginning, a time of tempest has seemed to come upon the continents of the earth. Masses of Asia have awakened to strike off shackles of the past, Great nations of Europe have fought their bloodiest wars. Thrones have toppled, and their vast, vast empires have disappeared. New nations have been born. For our own country, it has been a time of recurring trial. We have grown in power and in responsibility.
0: And welcome back to what is going The season finale of the Evoking History podcast for this hellish year of 2020. It is my pleasure to be joined by my friend and frequent collaborator and guest, Michael E. Carter. How are you doing, Michael?
2: I am doing pretty good uh, as far as the end of the semester and an ongoing global pandemic goes.
0: Uh, One that continues to ramp up, although, yeah, that is, uh, that is...
2: Immediately, immediately date the
0: podcast. (laughs) <laughs> yes, it will, it will. We are recording this on the 2nd of December of 2020. As I said, this will be the last episode and is the first season of Evoking History and Michael has been kind enough to have been on twice before and I thought it would be good to have him come on because we had teased talking about his actual research into... For sterilization, specifically in Puerto Rico, but Michael, as always, has prepared much more than that, so I'm looking forward to learning more about this grim topic in these grim times. Thank you, Michael.
2: Yeah, not, nothing like a genocide scholar to uplift the moon. Uh,
0: well, you know, as uh, the African American Policy Forum tweeted out earlier, today, American history is a history of suicide, apartheid, and States sanctioned oppression, so Merry Christmas to all.
2: <laughs> yeah, this this is the this is the the grim nineteenth century Christmas story version of the evoking history podcast where it's just sadness and terror <laughs> as as you enjoy your you know, your holiday season. So uh,
0: the the semester's winding down. Uh, as my listeners know, I did not actually have any in-class responsibilities this season, but I have been feverishly working on my syllabi for my return to the classroom in the spring, and I'm looking forward to that, I suppose. I am definitely looking forward to it. Um, I'm sure there will be many challenges, but that is not what we are here to talk about. And where would you like to begin?
2: The beginning. No, um, <laughs> a, that's always a good place. Yeah. Um, so uh, a good uh, as I ramble onward, um, a good place to begin well, would be you know what we teased, which would be the Puerto Rico uh, situation, which was my master's thesis. Uh, it was the thing that earned me my degree. Although, as far as I'm concerned, it is ongoing research. It is not definitive because it's one of those. Thing in hindsight is that I, you know, I, I, am proud of what I put together and, you know, got graded in. It. I got a degree, hooray! Uh, but I see, I see holes in it that I could drive, you know, a semi through. Sure. Um, and I guess, I, I guess anyone who's done any major research would sort of begin with that kind of statement. Um, but that's sort of what happens when you have three days in the National Archives and you spent the first two of those days trying to figure out how they work. Um, but really, um, I stumbled upon this topic uh, because it was, I believe, it was my second semester uh, of my master's. And I took a course uh, with Dr. Agoti Freire at Kane University on Latin American Genocide. It was my favorite course I took through that entire experience. It was probably the course that I guess was most for me to live, one of those few moments where I went like, oh, I'm looking at this all wrong. And we covered a documentary called La Operation about sterilization abuse uh, in the 50s and 60s in Puerto Rico. And we talked about it. And at the time, being the idiot that I was only a few years ago, I sort of looked at it and i like, and I literally remember saying in the discussion that we had the, that week, you know, if this is genocide, then it's the bare minimum. I said something like that. And as I went through the course the rest of that semester, that sort of haunted me, the way that you know, I looked at it in those terms that were incorrect terms. And I was I felt ashamed because I was like, hey, I hold myself to a higher standard than this. I shouldn't I shouldn't have thought about it in that way. So I ended up deciding at the end of the, the course, the end of that semester, to basically talk to Dr. Gotifre and say, look, this is what I want to write my graduate thesis on because I feel like I have to make amends for the fact that I didn't appreciate this enough when we, when it was first introduced to me. So that's what I did. And despite there being, as I said, sort of gaps in the narrative and, and the, even the evidence, I will admit up front, um, the point that I have ultimately come to, the conclusion that I have ultimately come to, is the fact that I believe there is a case to be made that the sterilization abuse that occurred on the island of Puerto Rico in the mid 20th century could be considered genocidal. Um, the stuff, the weeds you get into, and I'll, and I'll get into a bit of the history of the numbers in a second, but the weeds you get into with that argument is the fact that I have yet to find a definitive link between fe- the federal government and Puerto Rico itself, although I have found circumstantial evidence pertaining to federal government policy regarding sterilization worldwide. So that's where the sort of research currently sits. Sure. Um, well, oh, sorry, go ahead.
0: Well, no, that just leads me to my first question, uh, and it's actually two questions. So you've used the term, at times, on here, sterilization abuse, yeah. and that is technically for some that I've heard... That term. So I'm wondering where that comes from. Is that from legal cases? Is that a uh, a, an adoption of a legal term, or is that from the corpus of you know writing on it that I am I won't say blissfully unaware of. I am aware that this happens, but I haven't done a whole lot of reading specifically on just sterilization. And my the second part of that then, is you said you stumbled across this in a genocides in Latin America, of course. Yeah. And you also said that you know, there are other examples of this worldwide. Some of them I'm familiar with, some of them I am not. I'm wondering if this happened in other Latin American locations other than Puerto Rico.
2: Hmm. Okay. Um, I will start with the, the first question, which was the origin of the term sterilization abuse. Through my research and my work, I have not found the origin of the term, which leads me to believe that it's sort of a term that was adopted in sort of a uh, an advocacy or an activist um, sort of standpoint, the idea of what are we going to call uh, the fact that these women, particularly women, I've, that's the overwhelming number of victims of this kind of atrocity are, are women, particularly women of color, but we'll get into that. Um, Uh, So I believe that term is really sort of a way to describe it. I would actually hope uh, to replace the term in a matter, in a way, because what I, in this sort of work that I do, I'm working, as we've described before, undoubtedly on this podcast, is I work in sort of a Lempkinian lens. I I try to work as close to Raphael Lemkin as possible. And he actually has a term for this. It's biological genocide. It's the limiting of members of a group. Um, right. So I would wish, I would desire for the term sterilization abuse to not be utilized. I wish that we would have more of an outcry um, to call it um, biological genocide or genocide. And there's a few instances of that. Some of them are uh, not as well placed as others, uh, but I'm sure we can get into that um, if when I talk about some of the other case studies and some of the more recent um, instances. That I'm sure we'll talk about your second question. Um, forgive me, but I think I may have not made something clear. So when, when I'm talking about uh, genocide in Latin America, uh, the course was multiple. So you're asking me about multiple instances of sterilization abuse in Latin America.
0: Correct. Yes. I know that there have been other genocides in Latin America, yeah. of course, but I was just I, wondering if you ran across this specific type I, typology
2: if i let me take a one quick look i believe because there's actually if i were to skip ahead if i may uh one of the main documents that i ended up using to justify the case uh that it is uh, a genocide sort of it could have been a genocidal um event in puerto rico was the fact that there was an individual in the 1970s, in April of 1977, there was a man man named uh, Dr. Reimard T. Ravenholt, and he was the director of the federal government's Office of Population for U.S. Aid. And he spoke to the St. Louis Dispatch, where he basically explained that there was a plan um, for the U.S. government to sterilize up to 100 million women worldwide. Oh wow. And that he claimed that it was to protect US economic interests and that the United States also had a moral responsibility to sterilize people to in order to lower death rates in foreign countries. And also, of course, the plan was to normalize US corporate interests worldwide. So this when you're talking about this kind of stuff, particularly in the era of the Cold War, and particularly in terms of Latin America, it intersects with about 12 or 6 different other aspects of American foreign policy. Um, I do know uh, that there was a list of foreign countries in a document that he actually... So he said that to the St. Louis Dispatch in 1977, what he was actually doing is revealing a classified 1974 memorandum that talks about the federal government's over, um, worries about overpopulation. You know, they were afraid that it was going to lead to child abandonment and, you know, underemployment and petty thievery and, you know, revolution and counterrevolution, basically all the things that would hurt the, the federal government's plans of, you know, protecting the U.S. corporate interests. And one of the examples that they had these lists of Caribbean nations that were promising for these sort of quote unquote family planning programs, and they used Puerto Rico as an example. So, while unfortunately I do not have the literal document in front of me to look to name Latin American countries, there is a clear indication that I don't know if it occurred. I don't. I don't know enough about the individual issues on the ground, or whether or not these plans that the U.S. government had in the late in the mid to late 70s uh, actually came to pass in terms of, you know, uh, sterilizing people in the developing world. But there was certainly on paper. I'll leave that as my answer. There was cer- there was certainly an on paper agenda to use uh, forced sterilization or coerced sterilization. I, I believe we're splitting hairs with that term, if you want to be if sure. I'm going to be honest, um, in the third world, in the developing world, including the Caribbean yeah. and Latin America. Um, so whether or not that ultimately came to pass, I will admit to not being sure at this stage of the research, um, but it was on paper. And this, and this, you know, um, Ravenholt, Dr. Ravenholt was willing to go on the record with the St. Louis <laughs> dispatch, you know, four years after that classified memo was released to basically lay it out on the table. So they weren't, at least he wasn't ashamed of it. Uh, He himself was sort of a zealot um, for population control. You know, you see these types of people. I mean, I saw these types of people in doing the research, you know, these sort of uh, late 19th century, early, uh, early 20th century eugenicists that were like, you know, chomping at the bit at the idea of you know keeping the the savages from reproducing. It was it's really even as a genocide scholar, some of the stuff that you find with just casual you know conversation in you know uptown Manhattan at the time. It was like oh yes, you know the exact kind of snobbery you would expect, but with the like this darkest sort of content imaginable.
0: Well, the thing that's really fascinating to me about that is that happens in 77. So, you know, and I, I don't have a Pollyannish view of this, that Holocaust suddenly are, suddenly put aside to genocide or even raise the awareness of such acts in a way that has prevented them from happening again. Because, well, we, we, as we've talked about ad nauseum on here, that's not the truth. But it's the, that is a almost blatant admission not only to the government's desire to carry out a genocidal mission or program, but also one that is bald-facedly imperialistic because it's happening in places that, yes, Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory, but a lot of the rest of the Caribbean in Latin America are not. So in areas that are, you know, Independent sovereign nations, and that really shocks me.
2: Yeah, well, it's you know at risk of getting too off track in, in the sort of theme of our conversation, you know, there's the famous picture of you know Reagan, although we're getting a little bit later, of sitting there with the with the red shirt that says "Stop Communism" in in Latin America or whatever. It says it, it's the same kind of principle. It's the fact that that there are there's a reason of the world. Uh, particularly, you know, Latin America and South America that did not get to have its sovereignty because the United States said so. That's that's a sort of, you know, almost like a reverse application of the monodoxy. It's not only right. does Europe not get to intervene in Latin America. Latin America did not get to intervene in Latin America.
0: Unless um, the Falklands. Um, but, yeah, no, totally. Um, so... And I don't want to belabor this because I know you have plenty of other really yeah. interesting information to go on, but one avenue to consider then just because of the fact that we had so many military interventions there and including one not too far off temporally would be Haiti and wonder if, the, if these were implemented in Haiti then.
2: I actually don't know about um haiti it's it's kind of a mixed bag i will admit because um, i unfortunately did not prepare these notes for our conversation today but in guam the navy worked to increase the birth rate <laughs> so it's literally if you want to talk about you know literal paternalism in terms of how the united states yeah. is intervening in um other countries um birth rates it's it literally seemingly have to go case by case to see whether or not we oh, are yeah. involved at all. Because um, I know in Guam, you know, there is a book somewhere in these massive stacks of books that I haven't put together into my library yet uh, regarding <laughs> how the Navy increased uh, the birth rate in um, Guam. Actually, so I know, you know, you, you want to get to the other case studies. So I'll get to sort of the, the meat of the Puerto Rico matter, because we <laughs> sort of jumped the gun and we went to the ending. Um, <laughs> right. So, as everyone uh, hopefully is is aware, uh, that the origins of Puerto Rico as a as a U.S. territory uh, emerged from basically the real estate transaction at the end of the you know the spanish american Filipino War, where with the Treaty of Paris we you know the United States took it. Uh, along with you know Cuba, Guam, and the Philippines, you know, with varying little you know details about how each of you handled and how, and there were no Puerto Ricans there to argue for their own self-determination. So, ultimately, speaking of self-determination, Puerto Ricans would would get their citizenship shortly before uh, the American entry in the First World War. So, you know, Woodrow Wilson, who would later become the champion of self-determination, just decided you know they don't get it. Um, I mean, yeah. Uh, so, Wilson is incredibly problematic in that way. Yeah, and I am not the one to talk about Wilson as an expert, but you know, you could sort of see the fumes of racism coming off that guy just from his pictures. Yeah. Um. But so, as a territory, there's really the standard imperial treatment that Puerto Rico got you know, it's, its its currency was devalued despite the fact that, it, that the peso in Puerto Rico roughly had the same value as the dollar. So overnight, about 40% of Puerto Rico's savings were lost. Uh, basically, tax levies and unchecked uh, usury in the loans basically meant that the banks started absolutely monopolizing land. By 1930, 44% of all found land was, was forced to produce solely sugar. Um, the first its first um, civilian government a governor who left power in 1901 went on to be the treasurer for what the company that is now Domino Sugar. So we're literally, you know, the there's no limits between the government and the corporate interest on the island at least in the early tenure of its years. Um, all the while, from it, this whole time, you know, the insular cases believing that they were savages and ignorant, and you know, they couldn't handle themselves correctly. The same kind of paternalism that you would see in the Philippines, the same kind of paternalism that you saw throughout the 19th century with with Native Americans. Just the exact same sort of language uh, shows up uh, in the Puerto Rico uh, question, and that I actually say is probably the you know eugenic basis. Um, for what happened in Puerto Rico, how, how you end up importing, you know, Victorian mad science into, you know, medical policy on the island. The most interesting thing that happens in the lead up um, to the increase in, in the sterilization numbers is in the late 40s, um, with the rise of Puerto Rican nationalism, in the late 40s, uh, they end up on the FBI subversive group list. So then you have more federal manpower being applied to the island to support the colonial police in order to sort of suppress the nationalist movement. Uh, Basically, from the late 50s to March of 1954, there's a series of nationalist revolts. Uh, It's one of the few times you actually have, actually the only time, you've had the United States military bomb its own civilians um, in peacetime. You have uh, massacres, violence, you know, assassinations committed both by the nationalist movement and by the the, the counter-nationalist uh, law enforcement, and that effort ultimately failed. So, throughout the early 1950s, you have this, you know, this violent nationalist drive to achieve uh, decolonization and independence of Puerto Rico. That as I justify in the research or to the best of my ability, I justify in the thesis, I think is the moment the sort of fuel for what becomes if there is a mass sterilization conspiracy uh, by, you know, if not the government, then government-aligned actors on the island. That's the thing that tipped it off because the Ravenholt, you know, the memo that Ravenholt describes, I'm kind of happy now that we started with that by accident. He says, you know, to prevent revolution and prevent counter-revolution. Well, you've just had an attempted revolution in Puerto Rico. So, and this is pushed. I can get into the, the details with this. How it, you know small families were being pushed in the textbook literature for children. You have that the factories on the island, because it was essentially a tax haven. You know, the the owners of the factories were basically supporting. Uh, their female employees to get sterilized. There was a literal co- um, cooperation between these clinics um, and factories on the island. Cities would brag. Uh, there's an instance in the documentary, or the documentary from the 80s, where a former mayor brags about the amount of people in his city that were that were sterilized because of this. It was it was shown to be it was imported to be a sort of sign of civilization and progress, Um, to have a small family, to, you know, et cetera, et cetera, to have the white picket fence and the, you know, the two kids. Uh, Although that was, of course, underlined with the fact that the women that were being sterilized were being sterilized with little to no consent, little to no informed consent. Um, A lot of them in the documentary, which is the main source of accounts of this behavior, um, will say, you know, I didn't know what they cut. I didn't know, you know, what was going on. You know, they describe, you know, a, a host of different instances. And then, of course, that then intertwines with how early versions of the birth control pill were also tested with little to no consent on Puerto Rican women. So this, this is all happening at pretty much um, the same time. And then there is a study in 1969 that indicated that one third of all Puerto Rican mothers between the age of 20 and 49 in 1965 had been sterilized. Uh, that is double the numbers that were in the mid 1950s. The median age of the mothers when they were sterilized were 26. Mo- the median age, the medium length of marriage was six years. At a time of sterilization, most had two to three kids. The estimate, the estimation then of how many victims there potentially were uh, is in the hundreds of thousands. We don't actually have a documented number of uh, people that were sterilized in this fashion. That's sort of the holy grail of this research. And I don't think I'll ever actually find a dead number, a said number.
0: Right, yeah. Um, well, that leads to the the question then, because we know that there's this policy and we know that there had been a push by Harry Laughlin in 1914 for model eugenical sterilization laws across the, the country and into the territories. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those were passed in the 30s, as you said. What percentage of this one-third – and you may not have an answer to this. Um, this is just me asking a question because do we know how many of these women were or uh, were sterilized against their will or with misleading information as opposed to those who chose sterilization for whatever reason?
2: That, that's a very fair question. Um the initial so the way the question is phrased is do we know? And I'm gonna open up that with a no, but then I'm gonna sort of break that down. Okay. The way it was described, the way it's set up, um, is um, because of how it was presented, both culturally uh, as a societal matter. You know, it was it was good for work because you didn't get pregnant and you could go out and be part of the workplace and also the fact and this is something that's mentioned earlier in the documentary the men sure as hell weren't going to get sterilized right (laughs) Um, so this is when we get a little bit into the weeds of forced and coerced Um, so really to my knowledge I don't believe there was women that were technically forced to be sterilized all of them sort of I shouldn't say all of them. I, should, I shouldn't say absolutes. But it, it seems, to the, the evidence that we have now seems to indicate that no one was dragged in against their will and, you know, then had their reproductive rights literally ripped from them. Yeah. It seemed more the fact that there was no informed consent. And really, some of them uh, appeared to believe that this could be reversed or that it was a temporary measure um, stuff like that. So that's really when. So that's really your answer. So is it. So do we know how that breaks down? No, uh, but it does seem to be that the key issue with the lack of informed consent on a massive scale.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, without a doubt, I'm sure that that occurred—that uh, false in and misleading information—and I would go so far, and this is just me, and, and this is not my particular area. Uh, area, but if I, I know in some cases, especially uh, in North Carolina, where a large number of African Americans were uh, were sterilized, there was not consent given at all because the the mm-hmm. procedure was undertaken without them even knowing it, about it beforehand. And I don't know if that is also the case in Puerto Rico or not, but I would say that that is a forced sterilization.
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, I actually, we can go through it right now. Um, for I believe the, the based on the notes that I have, based on the sources that I have, 1950 and 1960, the number of uh, sterilized African-Americans uh, jumped from 23% of the population to 64% of the population of, of, in terms of, who, of, of sterilized African-Americans. And that the goal of that was to forcibly reduce the number of non-white welfare recipients. That was one of the primary um, factors. uh, If I recall correctly, and if my notes are correct, which I hope I do because I'm a historian, if I don't take notes right, what the hell am I doing? Um, So we have, you know, we have this as, as a continued, a matter of domestic policy that, you know, states can decide if there are, you know, members of their population that don't deserve to reproduce. You know, in, you know, going back, you know, a little bit to that, tam- a little bit later in that same time frame, you know, um, indigenous people, Native Americans, uh, there's a massive number of, of them. I believe the notes I have in 1968 to 1982. You know, forty-two percent of Indigenous women who were, you know, took part in this particular uh, report were sterilized. You know, and that and a key part of that, with the exact same language as we talked about in Puerto Rico, you know, they didn't believe Native Americans could use birth control. They didn't believe, you know, that they were capable of managing their own family planning, and you know, they therefore coerced them to consent to give to give up their fertility surgically. So it's the same. It, it's not even a different tactic right um if if I can go to one more example and then we could sort of talk about this as a sort of collective I also have um, in the late 1960s and early 1970s um, uh, chicana mothers in Los Angeles. there's an unknown number of, of women who were forcibly sterilized well you know through coerced consent in los Angeles hospitals because they didn't speak English, the doctors didn't speak um, Spanish, and they had them to sign away these uh, consent forms telling them that, you know, if you, you know, sign this, then we'll make the pain go away, we'll make whatever problem you're having go away, And and, you know, aside from any other issues that they had, once they, you know, gave birth to the child, they would also So we have, again, much like, you know, we have the hundreds of thousands of vague estimates for Puerto Rico, but we have no idea uh, about how many uh, Chicana and, you know, Hispanic mothers in, you know, Los Angeles to the greatest Los Angeles to the California area um, had that experience. So, I mean, it's, let's put it, uh, so to bring it all together, it's, it's really startling, you know. As a, as a genocide scholar, because generally when we talk about genocides, most of them, some uh, we have a sort of set time frame, give or take. Um, you know, the, the fringes, the margins of that are always, I guess this is true for any scholar of mass I won't even limit this to genocide. Um, you have sort of a set time frame. You know, sometimes the scholarship pushes the margins of when something begins and when something ends. But generally you have a, a, a period. And you can sort of get an estimate of how many victims there were and what roughly the death toll is. You know, sometimes if you're talking about colonial atrocities, you get, you know, the, the you know, the government might say, you know, a hundred people died. And then there might be a, you know, a counter, you know, position by the victim group that might say it was in the thousands. And then you're, you're now sort of having to shift through the historical record and more often than that, that seems to side, you know, it's really startling to look at something that's the relatively – not even the relatively recent past, you know, the 19, the late 60s, early 70s, and say, well, these atrocities happened, and we have absolutely no idea how many people were victimized. Well, I mean, <laughs>
0: and, and to that, you, you said that he gave that talk to the dispatch in 77, or was it 74?
2: Uh, 74 was when they had the, that memo – The classified memo that said, you know, we want to sterilize 100, you know, 100 million people. Um, Mm. But 77 is when he spoke to the St. Louis Dispatch. Well,
0: that's within my lifetime.
2: So, yeah. Yeah. So he's telling, you know, he's sitting there, you know. so So we're talking about 77 is when he's basically bragging to the St. Louis Dispatch. At you know only a few years after Los Angeles, at our current understanding of the time frame, only a few years after Los Angeles finished its um, you know public health you know sterilization of Chicano women, amid the process of the federal government sterilizing Native American women, right? You know after the eugenics board stuff in North Carolina, and as to our, my current understanding, after most of the genocidal um, well potentially genocidal actions in Puerto Rico. So we're having a member of the U.S. government saying in 77, after most of these domestic um, instances of abuse are done, and bragging, hey, we figured out that this works, now let's take it global. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, I mean, that's that's just it. I I think what we're seeing here, in my opinion... Uh, Let me again not as somebody who this is their primary area of research is that we have a massive perhaps not completely federal government but many state and, and territorial governments in compliance that are implementing these things through public health services and so the, the, the language and many different layers that this spreads out then forms, uh, and I'm not familiar enough with the scholarship on it, but really seems to be a, a overlaying of and complicity of public health and medical professionals with genocidal or at least imperial uh, population control methods.
2: Um I referred to them in the conclusion of my thesis um, when I was talking about Puerto Rico as overpopulationists, particularly the people that use the trappings mm. of the population boom, the trappings of you know not enough resources. If it was in German, we'd call them you know the people that were worried about you know uh, useless eaters like yeah. they're using those trappings to justify um, the denial of um, uh, fertility rights, for reproductive rights. And there's a great line. I'm not going to find it scrolling through my my thesis, and I'm not going to waste the time. But there's a good line of somebody in the documentary. I believe he was a professor at NYU at the time, because NYU... No, maybe it's not NYU. It might have been NYU. I'm getting confused, because Hunter College... Uh, in the CUNY system has the archive for, for Puerto Rico. So, I, and so I, I believe he's NYU, but he might also be um, whatever. These details don't matter. Uh, was talking about when he was talking about the over the overpopulation language used against Puerto Rico. He brought up almost ironically that there was this image being painted about Puerto Rico, and there were so many Puerto Ricans and they were climbing over each other you know, like ants, I believe that's the analogy that he uses. And the irony being that, you know, because a massive number of Puerto Ricans left the island. Yeah. They, they left in the Puerto Rican diaspora. And where did they end up? Most a, a, a great number. I almost want to say most of them, if we look at the population numbers. Manhattan, a smaller, more densely populated island. Mm-hmm. So that's the sort of irony of this population boom language, is they're saying this island has too many people, there's not enough resources. So we're going to ship them to a tinier island with more people and less resources. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just I mean that's what you that's what you get from pseudoscience. You're not going to find logic in pseudoscience.
0: Oh, no. Well, I mean it, it fits into all that neo-Malthusian or eco-fascistic language.
2: Yeah. Because it's well, it's never... yeah. What we would call you know, that's what we would call it today. If you know, yeah. if you want, you know, I like Jane Goodall, but when she goes out and says, you know, the Earth would work better if we had the population that we had 400 years ago. Well, I'm sorry, that's not how we work. Yeah, you no, know, that's not how this works. I'm sorry.
0: No. Well, exactly, <laughs> and and it's always, I mean, it, as you know, uh, uh, I'm preaching to the choir here, but uh, this type of language is always uh, for sorts of developing world or the global south or communities of color or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So, or dis- disproportionately poor communities.
2: Yeah, I. You know, you know, i was, and, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead.
0: Oh, no. And there's also usually uh, mixed up within this uh, elements and language of criminality, so that this mm-hmm. can be used as terms for, you know, uh, for sterilization of people, not only on uh, welfare or public uh, health access, but also as part of, you know, criminal measures. So.
2: Yeah, it was well. Prob- Going back to our you know wonderful friend Dr. Ravenholt and his the memo from you know 1974 you know juvenile delinquency uh, petty thievery organized banditry food riots separatist movements this is what the government was saying they had to sterilize people to stop that's yeah. not using the trappings of, of language of criminality that's saying we have to keep people from breeding or criminality will happen. It's, yeah you almost can't make this up
0: <laughs> no um, and it, even if you do not want to take it to the logical conclusion that it is genocide which I by the way agree with you on it is at the very least a crime against humanity
2: oh absolutely well I I'll say this because we we could sort of segue into um, some of the more contemporary, Uh, issues that we I think we mentioned before we started recording Mm -hmm. is this is a problem that is still relevant not only because there's survivors um, who want who want this story told or or at least telling the story in some capacity but the problem that keeps happening um, I'm going to talk one thing I want to plug very briefly before I, I go into the second case study, is that there is a documentary film that is currently out on uh, p- through PBS, and I believe that it will still be up when this goes public, uh, called Belly of the Beast. And I actually have yet to see it in its totality, but it's about forced sterilization in the California correction system of women who were forcibly sterilized against obviously against their will uh, while being held in California prisons. So this isn't, you know, we've talked about, we went through the dates of like the the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. This is yesterday. You know, this is now, um, quite literally. Yeah. Um, And jumping off of that, we have what I hope um, your listeners will be aware of uh, at this point is what broke in late September about the, an, a doctor, a, guy, a gynecologist uh, in Georgia who was working in, you know, he was working with ICE to treat, quote-unquote, uh, to treat women who were in ICE detention, and there is, there is at least, at last count of the last report I am aware of, 19 cases of forced hysterectomies as a result of this um, this individual um, in Georgia. Now, he is a private practice that has apparently been contracted out uh, for the detention center. And ICE allegedly has, I think their tune over the last couple of months has gone from we didn't know about this to we'll stop working with him So, and I can't, and I have yet to find evidence, although the evidence might never come out or it might come out in 10 years, knowing how, you know, documents work. At this point, it doesn't seem like uh, a genocidal plan um, to sterilize people in ICE detention, but it's the same trend. The fact that, you know, we have a vulnerable population, whether it be them, you know, uh, particularly women of color in the California Uh, Correction system, or particularly women of color in ICE detention, being vulnerable to these abuses. What I believe the documentary Belly of the Beast used the term um, "state violence" to describe it. I would agree. It's 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 a trend that, unfortunately, much like global genocide, will continue to happen. I don't really have any way to go with this. Talk, please. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
0: I want to give a shout out to Don Wooten, who was the nurse who was at that ice facility, who was the whistleblower on that. And also, I mean, this fits into a pattern of behavior, not necessarily all of which is um, the high risk of hysterectomies and forced sterilization. Although I'm sure it was not just occurring at this one facility even though that's the only one that we have a uh, confirmation of at this time, but of other ICE activities that are very egregious. I mean, if we look at it, and the, the numbers that I'm taking are from the Union of Concerned Scientists, uh, just for the sake of transparency, and that the number of families in dentists detention during this pandemic, uh, 44% of them are from Haiti. They're being forced to stay for longer periods, their bonds are higher, and that is, or can be conceived as, whether they would ever admit to this or not, but that type of, this type of activity, holding certain immigrants or migrants or asylum seekers in detention longer and with higher bonds, forcing them to be exposed longer is also along the same lines as this. And I'm going to get above my skis on this comment, but there was, I believe it was the ACLU in Texas who filed a complaint because of the fact that in these ICE detention centers, when they were bothering to do anything regarding COVID at all, they were exposing the... Inmates to high rates of exposure to the cleaning agent, which had a known carcinogen in it, and they were just spraying people effectively down with it. Um, That might not be exactly it, uh, so I don't want you to go too much into it because I don't have that right in front of me right now, but I mean it it is just all of these things that are not treating the people in these facilities as humans, as less than humans and we saw similar things in Guantanamo Bay, we've seen similar things in various other detention facilities and concentration camps and uh, and that's effectively what a lot of these ice detention facilities are.
2: Yeah, that's well, yes, and you know, just you, you did the right thing, and you give a shout out to Dawn Wooten, uh, who is uh, Dawn. Yeah, Dawn was a, a nurse and a whistleblower, and may I say so far to say a hero in this in this context. That's and fantastic. she was involved with the Irwin County uh, Detention Center in Osilla, Georgia. Um, which you want to talk about other human uh, problems that this intersects with is a private prison that is run by a contractor, uh, La Salle Corrections, which is a private company that runs immigration detention facilities in Georgia, Texas, and Louisiana. So it would be interesting if you were talking about um, Texas as a possible uh, place where detainees were being subjected to a known carcinogen. And then you told me not to get worked up like that. Like you're gonna tell the cancer survivor not to get worked up by, you know, well potentially I did, people I did, I
0: did mean not not to get worked uh, up about it. Actually I didn't have
2: all the other details. Oh, yeah, you that. didn't have, okay. Okay. But I mean it's the fact of the I mean it's the fact of the matter is and there's you know, I have I have all these articles that I took because I'm actually working on something regarding the um the histo- the ice hiptoethanies case at the moment. But like you and there, it gets to the point where you, you sort of find this how this ah, sorry i am be a bit um, it works through this sort of pattern. Like first, it's like all right, we're not gonna we're gonna separate these individuals from their families. I believe the the latest admission, at least according to the LA Times reporting, is 666 children that we basically orphaned as a matter of federal policy. So we're gonna separate all these children from their parents. We're gonna lock them in detention to the point where, you know, six year olds are taking care of ten week olds. You know, as a matter i that might not be the you know, I've heard examples of, you know, six children take care of other six children, you know, with, with space blankets and no resources. You know. Yeah. And of course the political the political discussion is the sort of, you know, infantile debate over who built the cages. It doesn't matter who built the bloody cages, it's about who's in them. Mm-hmm. Um and, it's, and the fact of the matter is, you it gets down, you know, you just go down the list, you know, denying doctors to get them flu shots, exposing them to COVID. You know, you know, there's a there's a reporter, I believe this is from July uh, from Mother Jones saying how people had uh, fevers. They crank up the air conditioning and hoping to freeze out the fever. So they so ice, you know, didn't have, pretend to did not have to deal with it. Then you move into the, you know, you move into September and, you know, you move into the fact that, you know, the hysterectomies and the possibility that it's going on elsewhere, the fact that, you know, you expose people to these cleaners, you know, with potential, you know, disregard for their health. You know, it's, you know, I know we kind of get, got off the rails from the, you know, the forced sterilization stuff, but it's just when you get right into the weeds of it, you know, it's, that's, as it, American as it comes, I will be willing to say. You just have these patterns of systemic state violence contracted out as often as possible to these third parties where you can have arguable, you know, deniability because, oh, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a federal prison that did that. That was, uh, you know, a private prison contractor and we'll stop working with them at once. You know, and then you have the, you know, it keeps going on elsewhere. The machine keeps on turning. Well, and that's just it. I mean, it goes
0: to a pattern of
2: behavior that,
0: uh, and I often wonder. And this would be hard to suss out, but I often wonder if there is a trail of interactions, whether it be. Uh, and I do think that part of the farming out of this to private prisons and you know private doctors is a. Well, that is less money that the government then has or has to take in on itself, less services that they then have to provide. They can farm it out, and by gosh, we are capitalists, quote unquote. But also, there's a level of plausible deniability, and I'm wondering then how many of these, if you can trace this from facility to facility, um, whether it be because one – private prison network, as you pointed out, owns multiple facilities that would make you think that they would want to subcontract their medical out to the same people and allow them to run amok. Uh, Or if this is something where it it starts off at a medical facility in California, and then agents and representatives from that get transferred to other locations and it spreads that way. Because it's hard to say whether this is truly a and and i would also argue that it doesn't matter that this is a a memo coming from on high from ice or the environmental protection well not them but the ICE or homeland security or whomever saying do this to these people is it a pattern of neglect or is it a pattern of abuse that comes from certain individuals who are given
2: free reign within the organizations see it's as much as I think about this and read about this, because it's it's the contemporary relevance of my field, as well as yours and, and, and many the fields of many of our mutual friends, unfortunately, um, I almost think we're not going to know for a good amount of time. I think within the next 10, 20 years, you know, depending on what happens in 2024, go, oh God, let's not even go there. Um yeah. <laughs> within the next let's not no, we're not we're not leaving we're not doing that. Um, but I almost think of like the next 20 uh, 10, 20 years, there's gonna be like a dissertation on this they just wait for that material to come out. Oh to, yeah, to draw to make that because that's a that's a massive massive project, especially if they're going to look into all these individual facilities to try to track that course. No, because you're, you know, you're dealing with four years of, you know, four years plus of federal policy. You know, you're, oh, yeah. you're, you're, dealing, you're dealing with, you know, from going down the golden escalator to saying, you know, Mexicans are rapists. to trying to figure out how the hell you ended up with all these people, you know, being expo- potentially allegedly exposed to Carthaginians and these instances in Georgia and these instances, you know, that's a massive project. And it's, it would probably be a terrifying project to have to research because mm-hmm. you would have to because this is all happening you know you would be finding stuff that's going on in these facilities at the same time that we have you know a seemingly progressive movement you well, know in, in the Black Lives Matter movement and the Time's Up movement and the, like you have these sort of public progressive you know recognition the wrongdoing one wrong, the correct wrongdoing and then in this sort of shadowed part of federal policy, you have the worst, most depraved versions of, you know, what we're trying to fight against.
0: Well, then we also have... In theory, allegedly. Yeah, allegedly. (laughs) uh, Allegedly, but then there's also the fact that a lot of these are private businesses and private individuals and aren't forced to keep the same level of record keeping or have the same transparency to scholarship that the federal government has. Yeah. and there um, is no telling i i am very uh, concerned that right now in the as the clock ticks to the end of the trump administration that what paperwork and files that are truly incriminating are being tampered with and destroyed if they were ever kept in the first place because i'm not yeah. sure that even with all the the laws and institutions for federal oversight and record keeping that were that are on the books and out there that um, this
2: administration
0: truly followed them.
2: Yeah. We're, we're it's unfortunately something that we're going to have to learn the hard way to see whether or not, you know, we're going to be dealing with a massive gap in the historical record of federal documents. Um, and actually let me, let me say this because It's actually an interesting sort of hypothetical, to get away from the sort of miserable history that we've already discussed. Sure. There is a massive sort of amount of scholarship about the sort of corporate um, business sort of capitalist interest of the sort of banana wars and that kind of nature. The idea of, you know, the the and I, we even talked about it. I talked about how the banks sort of influenced Puerto Rico to produce, you know, sugar as a primary cash crop. We have that record for, you know, for those who wish to study that vein of sort of Latin American history. Do you think, and this is purely hypothetical, that in the next sort of coming decades, we'll start to see that kind of material being dug up? or whistleblown or leaked or discovered um, in some manner or another for private prisons in this country, or we begin to see the exact nature of the relationship in the you know late 20th, early 21st century between federal governments and these sort of corporations and what they sort of wrought. Do you think we'll see that sort of emerge as a point of recent historical scholarship or upcoming historical scholarship?
0: So I think you we think... will,
2: mm-hmm.
0: because I think that carceral studies is a emerging field, almost like genocide studies is in that it is a multidisciplinary between sociologists, uh, philosophers, historians, and, and various other disciplines who look at the way that, The carceral state and interacts and influences power. What I what where I wonder about how truly um what's the term I'm looking for? I wonder about the the ability to do it again because some of these are private businesses and private businesses often attempt to control access to their archives, meaning they have first right of refusal to uh, allowing something to be released because it is uh, corporate uh, secrets, all these other things. Yeah. So I do think that we'll get some of that, but I think that there will be some gatekeeping that will have to be overcome. And I'm, I'm sure that eventually it will, but, you know, it might be something where it might take
2: 30, 40 years. Yeah, we're probably. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking as well. That we're gonna get, you know, maybe in a couple of decades, we're gonna get like a war as a racket equivalent for the private prison system, where someone just comes out and he's like, "Look, you have to understand what the hell we were doing." Yeah,
0: no, no it's, and I <laughs> really, mean, I totally, hopefully, I I totally think we'll we'll get that. But I mean, we also have. Uh, I, I want to use the uh, Guantanamo as, as kind of. Um, an example of this because we had there is some scholarship out there on that and a lot of it by investigative uh, journalists and stuff of that nature but we also have some of the people who are behind the torture at guantanamo who are still cycling through the system in the in the united states government um mm-hmm. so as long as they are doing that and on the Corporate side, I imagine it's much easier because you can step down and go into the well, yeah, I was a, a yeah. whatever for the CIA and a black side, and now I can help you run your private prison. And I, I'm just
2: spitballing here. I mean, I, I yeah, yeah, we're, we're basically just, you know, we're, we're using our informed knowledge of how terrible our country is to make <laughs> guesses about how continually <laughs> terrible our country will be. That's yeah. basically
0: what we're doing. Um, so, mm-hmm, exactly. So it's kind of the golden parachute. So uh, and I think that as long as you have those people circulating through the system, it will make truly exposing anything very, very difficult. Yeah. And, you know, uh, criminal justice reform, uh, people are very weird. The general populace is because. As you see, with as much disgust as there has been, righteous disgust, I will say, and outrage uh, over the summer uh, following the George Floyd killings and some of the other incidents that occurred, there have also been a a not unsizable portion of the population who always cape up and come to the defense of cops and these institutions. So I wonder, I, I do not doubt that Something will be written on this, and dissertation will be written on this, but I wonder how much traction it will get.
2: Yeah, that's that's a downer point to be ben, to be completely honest. Like, yeah, we might get this, and no one will listen. Uh, no, but it's you know to to talk about a sort of wider you know uh, political point. It's you are right. So it's the sort of, it's the fact that there is a, a strict contingent that, that will not only like back uh, power, let's yeah. not even say law enforcement, let's just take power. Yeah. Um, and that's just a matter of, matter of fact. It's it's a really, you know, to, to get a little bit, you know, political, although everything we have talking about is, is political because history is political. Um, you know, I live in a fairly, you know, conservative area. I, I live in the, sort of the redheaded stepchild of New York City that decided to, like, vote Republican. Um, but you tend to see a lot of people, you know, who drive around with bumper stickers or flags or some variant thereof that have both the uh, the don't tread on me and the back of the blue. And you're sort of sitting there like, well, which one is it? Are you, are you against um, you know, authority being over you, or you're backing the presence of the very people that. But that's you know that's yeah. the a whole different. You would have to get someone on that's like studied the last you know hundred years of American politics to <laughs> to sit here and you know break that cognitive dissonance down. I'm not that person, but yeah, you you are right. There's probably we're definitely gonna get something written about this in some shape or form, and. It will most. It probably won't make public headway. we will yeah. know about it because it's the stuff that we look for in the emerging scholarship. But it's not going to end up on CNN. You know, to, to throw out an example. Not that yeah. you know, most of our most of the work that that we know about does. Right.
0: I mean, I think that, and I would say that there is stuff that's being written about. It now. It's just not yet the the purview of historians. Yeah. um You know, Simon Balto recently wrote his book on occupied territory about policing in Chicago, and I think that some um, uh, Will uh, Schacharitis, who I had on my podcast, talked about a similar thing in Milwaukee. So I do think the scholarship is is being yeah. done. But, I mean, a lot of that is also looking at stuff in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, even though BALTO does go up to the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, yeah. So it, it's just because, you know, and, and, I, and I say this as um, I love our discipline, but there's a little bit of a criticism of our discipline in that there is still a, if you're doing something that is too current, you get accused of doing journalism, not history, to which I always respond the first histories of the second world war were written in
2: the 1950s so come on guys i mean i have what is it it's um oh god let me be able to find it like it's not going to take me six years there is um one of my favorite quotes about history it used to be for a long time it was my my pin tweet before i decided to spend two days ripping apart that spectator uh (laughs) article um but there's a line in Steve Inskeep. He's a um, a journalist for NPR. He wrote um he wrote you know he wrote a book called Jackson Land, which was on the Cherokee removal. It's not that bad of a book, but there's a line in it. I believe it's towards the end. I believe it's like one of the, the one of the last paragraphs of the book. And he says something along the of the lines of you know this is a this is a love story and the best you know I, the best way to love your my my I just. one of the best ways to to show my love of country is to tell the truth all right here i I got it i found it um this book has been a joy to write even though it tells a difficult story it is about my country which makes it a love story of the many ways to show one's love one of the best is to tell the truth that's a journalist and that's one of my absolute favorite quotes about history because it sums up you know i'm an americanist genocide scholar i signed up to read and write about the worst possible things this country has done, and I love this country. Oh yeah, that's why I'm doing it. Because <laughs> I well, think that's... this country belongs to you know everyone that's in it, so that we deserve to tell this history. We deserve to tell this well, story.
0: Well, that's why stuff like the 1776 project just truly pissed me off. Oh you know? God. <laughs> and. And I know yeah, that it, that the interpretation of history, and it's not just here. It's in other places, too. The Hindutva movement in India, and Indian education has done similar things. But the uh, – and we have a long and not uncontroversial history of whitewashing our history here in the United States for political purposes, for propaganda purposes. And I get that, and I, I realize that education – is often used in that way, especially history. It is is in identity formation, in um, national identity, especially uh, citizen formation, that you do this, that you, that's why we have these national myths that we teach everybody so that we can all come together as good, solid Americans and support, you know, mom, God, and apple pie and all this other stuff. But I agree 100% that we have to take a much more critical look at this country, and if we ever want to as a nation get past these divisions that are self-inflicted, we have to face them with a level of accountability that railing against the 1619 Project and the truths that that are exposed in that, we we will never get there if we insist that we are that city on the hill and are untarnished and unvarnished.
2: Yeah. I mean, I did not, I read the, I'm going to, the press, not the press release or the statement, whatever was made um, by the Trump administration that day. I didn't watch, um, I didn't watch the actual um, proceedings Mm -hmm. um, when it was announced. So I don't know the individuals who went up and, you know, spoke during this event, but, I can't think of a better way to publicly declare that you are unfit to be considered a historian than to turn yourself into state propaganda. I, and I'm not even just saying that in America. I'm saying that as like, look, why you, why would you stand up and say, you know, I, my scholarship fits the standard, you know, fits the standards of Donald Trump. That seems like the the, the worst peer review that could possibly exist. It's just saying that your history meets the standards of the Trump administration. It's so I, I was, I mean, it's it's beyond disgusting the idea that we that we need to have a, you know, a that we need to have historians run defense for American history. America's fine. It's fine. It's not it's not going to get hurt, you know, by the you know by the 1619 project or anything. You know, Kevin Cruz writes, or everything I write, or you write, or anyone else writes. The, the, America going to be fine. It's not going to be undermined by history. If anything, it's going to be better for it. You know. Yeah. You no, know, but we're not. We're not Joe Biden. We can't threaten God. Um, <laughs> Indeed. But anyway, we we kind of went really off the rails. <laughs>
0: well, we did. We um, did,
2: but it was. Um, that's good because you know. We, we we did we talked about absolutely terrible human rights, uh, human rights abuses and potentially genocidal atrocities, and then we had a fun conversation about the fact that you know this country is terrible yet we love it anyway. Yeah, we don't love it because yeah, it's terrible, it. obviously. But no. yeah,
0: I think some people do, but um, the, there's no accounting for taste and. Yeah, um, I wish that we could relegate this, uh, our earlier part of the conversation, to just a pure historical discourse. But as you say, that is not the case because that is still going on here and in other places uh, across the globe. Um, I uh, have to bring up the Uyghurs, at least mention them, even though I don't know a whole lot about But there are the reports of forced sterilization that China is Mm -hmm. doing against the Uyghurs. So... Yeah, uh, this is a a yeah. issue that is still happens all too often.
2: Yeah, there is um there's the Uyghur issue, and there's you know the fact that of course um you know the Chinese government denies it, and all the tankies on Twitter deny it, despite the fact that you know the U.S. Border Patrol you know the you know literally has intercepted hair trying to be imported into this country. Um, from China that we believe they come from Uyghurs. Um, And there is a good amount of arguments that could be made if you follow uh, survival.org and similar um, uh, Indigenous rights groups that there's sterilization efforts uh, going on among, uh, against rather, uh, I believe it's Indigenous people in Africa and elsewhere in regard to the World Wildlife Foundation, how they're complicit, they could be complicit in that as well. So it doesn't so it's not only a historical tactic and it's one that's you know being still used in the United States, but it's it's a very it's a targeted measure. It's um I refer I, I don't know if I refer to it this way in my thesis, but I sometimes think of it in terms of like a genocide without bullets. It's mm. it's invisible. Yeah. Because you could just commit it, you know. You can chemically sterilize or surgically sterilize these people, and especially if they're a vulnerable population in a, you know, a Chinese concentration camp, or if they're a, a, you know, indigenous people in a certain less developed part of the world, you're gone, and that 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 story vanishes. Yeah. And you know, you basically, you know, it, it it's terrifying. It because we don't have. You know, we don't have the easily, I want to be very careful how I say this, because I don't want to make it seem, I don't want to make a direct comparison, but it's a lot easier to watch for genocidal atrocities in, let's say, the war going on between Armenia and Azerbaijan. It's a lot easier to sort of watch the, the, watch the news and watch the reporting, see the desecration, see the massacres and the, and the torture, and, and say, all right, here we have a clear genocidal argument. The sort of specter of the early 20th century has, you know, returned, um, unfortunately, um, in Armenian territory. than you necessarily can in these other parts of the world where you have, you know, government interests and other interests basically conspiring um, to uh, rip away. Uh, the reproductive rights of those they still consider to be undesirable. It's one of the reasons, despite the fact that I am, I don't want to say more interested in in colonial history and colonial genocide, I'm always kind of pulled back, at least to a certain respect, to this thesis. Because I almost think that there is a world history to be written about sort of genocide by scalpel. Oh, yeah. Well, you got the title,
0: so... Um, right there genocide by scalpel yes because we always want to believe that our healthcare professionals have our best interest at heart and that science is impartial and will be harnessed for the good of mankind and that is just unfortunately not always the truth and the sterile operating room is a not some place that i think a lot of people think of genocide as happening but as we both know it it can and very often does or has historically let me put it that way been a vector of genocide Mm -hmm. absolutely well michael um We always have terrible conversations, but they're always good conversations. Happy holidays, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I I want to take a moment here to not only thank you for coming on three times, but all my guests over the year, Uh, many of them were were multiple. Dr. David Pizzo, who was on the first one and whom I hope to have on along with you on the first episode um, to to have a conversation uh, not entirely unsimilar to this one uh, when the new year kicks off. But to all the scholars and friends who took the time to appear on the show over the year, thank you for taking that time. To all the listeners throughout the world and the country who listened, thank you for allowing me to talk into your ear for hours at a time about sometimes unpleasant topics. But unfortunately, that's what history is. And we, again, just as I said about the country, but— it goes for the world to, Unless we confront the bad parts of our history, we will never move forward and relegate them to the the dusty bin of history. Please take some time, Michael, to promote your various endeavors.
2: Uh, I have no various endeavors. Um, <laughs> I, I have nothing going on at the moment. Uh, but if you want to see, uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm you could follow me at, at @deckofcarter. Um, D-E-C-K-O-F-C-A-R-T-E-R on Twitter. I try to produce as much history content as well, although a large amount of it is me just being snarky and angry at the world. Uh, So if that interests you, um, by all means, I invite whoever wants to follow me to follow me. And if I do have something else to plug uh, or I publish something else, that's, that's where I plug it as well. So you know, right now, it's all just ongoing research for me. I don't really have any big projects. I mean, I, I have nothing public to promote. So.
0: Okay. Well, uh, again, thank you for coming on and taking the time. And thank you for listening to the Evoking History podcast.